This is Drew Neiser, author of Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Drew Neiser to talk about his new book, Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. Drew Neiser is the founder of Renegade, a strategic boutique for B2B innovators, and CMO Huddles, a membership organization exclusively for B2B CMOs. He's also the host of the podcast, Renegade Thinkers Unite. Ranked among the top B2B influencers, Drew has been a featured marketing expert on ABC News, CNBC, CBS Radio, and Tony Robbins' podcast, among many others. Besides his long-running Ad Age magazine column, he's contributed articles to Fast Company, Forbes, Media Post, and CMO.com. Drew's first book, The CMO's Periodic Table, A Renegade's Guide to Marketing, published in 2015, features interviews with 64 marketing leaders at top brands, including American Express, Dow, IBM, and SAP. Drew started his advertising career at Wells Rich Green and later moved to J. Walter Thompson and Shiat Day and then founded the agency that became Renegade in 1993. And interesting fact, he's obsessed with and a bit of an expert on American founding father Benjamin Franklin. Drew, congratulations on Renegade Marketing and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I just, I, I love your show and it's just an honor to be with you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for your kind words, but I am just a knuckleheaded podcaster who can't stop reading these books. And I'm such a fan of people like you who are able to write them. But there are many interesting things about Drew Neiser. Okay. First off, you are the very first author I've interviewed who is a graduate of Duke University. Go, Blue Devils. Go Blue Devils. I can't believe it. Not a single one. I know. Yeah. Shocking. I'm going to have to make a big point of that. I am the only (laughs) dookie. This is like going to go on my epithet, the only dookie on Marketing Book Podcast. That's incredible. Well, I think uh, now that you're here, others will probably follow. They'll start coming out of the woodwork. And it's funny, like uh, 
uh, for some reason, Stanford grads got a real foothold, and now there's more been more authors with Stanford degrees than anywhere else. And it's not something I I planned. I didn't run an ad in the Stanford alumni magazine, but a lot of them started coming forward, and it's sort of like, well, maybe they saw someone else, so they said, okay, I'll I'll go on that guy's podcast, but. Even more importantly, uh, I should say that I guess I'm a Duke fan, uh, amongst many other things, because my mother is a graduate of Duke University, and one of my brothers went there. He's a graduate of Duke, so naturally he was her favorite child, and I can understand that. And I should also, for those folks who live in North Carolina, my mother's two brothers both went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, years ago, when my mother was in her 80s... (laughs) She passed away, and one of her brothers, uh, who went to Chapel Hill, passed away within six weeks of her, and Drew, right up to the very end, he was giving her shit about going to Duke. (laughs) I don't... I don't... Don't blame him. On the other hand, I bet she had the same mug I have, which is the coffee, one of my favorite coffee mugs that says, go to hell, Carolina. (laughs) That's it. It's just the way it is, you know? I mean, and anytime I hear a university of, you know, North Carolina, fine university, my instinctual reaction is, go to hell, Carolina. I got to get that mug for my brother. Oh my god! Yeah, oh. it's, it's the greatest. Yeah, that's that's terrific. So, the, uh, another thing that was of great interest to me is that you worked at uh, J. Walter Thompson until 1987, I believe. And I think that was the same year they were acquired by WPP. Uh, yeah, they were actually acquired a little bit earlier. Uh, oh, okay, and so I was there when that was happening, and then I spent one year at Lord Gelder, Federico, and Einstein, which was owned by JWT when the management team walked out of that agency. But yeah, we just missed each other. (laughs) I know. I started there in 1988, and it turns out we both, at one time, worked on the Listerine account. So. I want you to know, before this show, I went and gargled with Listerine just in preparation for the show, and I wanted to have good breath on the show. Thank you. Can you tell? Yeah, it's clearer, um, and you don't sound like you have as much plaque or gingivitis. Uh, so (laughs) I'm sorry, Listerine jokes, but, and and in fact, to this day, I still use Listerine every day, twice a day. And it's the brown, the amber stuff, the stuff that's 125 years old. And anyway, by the way, I do too. And so does my dad who started using it when I worked on the business. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. And then I, of course I, I, I find all these things. It's like we've had parallel lives. At one point you worked on the, the Panasonic account and I worked on that when I was at Gray and it turns out we had a lot of friends in common and clients in common. So that was, uh, Interesting, and it kind of kind of took me back down memory lane, uh, reading about uh, some of the things that you've done and 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 where you are. So, the book has been endorsed by several past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, and let me mention a couple of them. One of them is uh, Dory Clark, and you even have her endorsement on the cover of your book, which I think was a very good move. She writes, Drew Neiser's new book unlocks invaluable best practices for B two B marketers. If you want to learn the secret wisdom of nearly five. Hundred top CMOs pick up this groundbreaking handbook, and she was a recent guest. She was episode. Uh, she was on for the fourth time for episode three hundred fifty, and then a recent guest is Kimberly Whitler, who's a marketing professor at the Darden School at the University of Virginia, and she uh, for her book uh, Positioning for Advantage. 
And she writes, Drew has written a provocative book that at once challenges and inspires B2B marketers to reinvent their roles and impact. Written in an artful, easy-to-read narrative style, Drew's book is a perfect reflection of who he is, challenging the status quo in a way that works. A must-read for B2B marketers everywhere. And then I, gosh darn it, I I just love looking through the blurbs. I'm just a book nerd, a marketing book nerd. But you you also have an endorsement from Michael Brenner, who's been on the show twice. His most recent book is Mean People Suck, which I think is a great book title. Uh, John Hall, author of Top of Mind, and even Michael Shine, who is uh, the author of the Hype Handbook. And unlike you, he actually went to Penn, founded by Benjamin Franklin. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So did you develop this interest in Ben Franklin later in life, or was it in high school? And uh, I'm just surprised you didn't go to Penn. I know. My wife went to Penn, if that's uh, any consolation. Not only she went to undergrad and graduate, so I have some. And I have a picture of myself with sitting next to Ben. There's a statue of him on a bench, and so that counts. Uh, No, the obsession literally began in 2006 when I started thinking about this idea. At the time, we called it marketing as service. Mm-hmm. And it was just this notion that marketing could be more than words and pictures and so forth. And you know, shortly thereafter, Jay wrote his book, Utility. Um, another friend wrote a book called Marketing with Meaning. And, and as I was going through all this, I found Ben Franklin's saying, well done is better than well said. And for someone like me who spends a lot of time thinking about words, that was the lightning bolt, pun intended. That was the moment <laughs> that that I went, ah, I get it. Everything we're going to do is going to be focused. While we're going to get the words right, we're going to focus on marketing that you know is, is well done, the actions, not the words. So anyway, and it's been an obsession since then. My, we went to Paris. My wife went off to a chateau. I spent a day touring Franklin's sort of period uh, in France. And one last thing, and then I'll get back to your story, which is Franklin, I consider America's first chief marketing officer. Yes. Great. I and, loved it. I'd never seen that. And and it's so true. I mean, here's, this, here's the marketing challenge. Sell a revolution <laughs> to a king. Go for it. <laughs> off you go. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I guess you've read Walter Isaacson's I have. Uh, uh, biography, and I haven't read it, but I remember him saying that he was like uh, the first media entrepreneur. It was so interesting. And I, I can remember as a kid in 1976 during the uh, bicentennial, uh, there was some article I read about what would the founding fathers think of modern day life in you know, the United States or in the world. And they said Ben Franklin would like it the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say that. I mean, there's a great uh, scene where he's older. He's quite old. He's in France. And the first hot air balloon is going up there. And there's a demonstration. And someone says to Franklin, or he overhears him say, well, what good is that? That's, never, that's not going to do anything. And what Franklin said was, what good is a baby? And it was such a brilliant in an understanding, he so embraced technology. And I think that was his one, you know, if he had a regret, it was like, I can't live forever because I can't experience all this cool stuff that's going to happen. Yes. And he would have been the most comfortable. He, he could have said, I saw this coming. He, yeah. he, he might not have said that, but it would make perfect sense to him. So very, very interesting person. And it's even inspired me to want to go read that book or, or whatever uh, Ben Franklin uh, biographies that you recommend. 
You got it. I got a I got a long list. I think there's a couple that are better than Isaacson's. So uh, I'll share those with you after the show. Oh, great. Thank you. So the uh, introduction for the book was written by none other than Brent Adamson. Unbelievable. And he's the co-author of uh, the Challenger Sale and the Challenger Customer. And I actually got to spend a couple of days with him a few years back after I had interviewed Pat Spenner, one of his co-authors for the Challenger Customer. And they, it was a, a I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I thought it was going to be like a a small uh, you know event where you know, you'd sit in the audience and they would be talking about some of the interesting things that Gartner was doing at the time they were CEB. And it turned out it was only like twelve of us in a room with him <laughs> and Matthew Dixon and some of the other folks that he wrote these books with. And it, uh, with the exception of me, almost all the other people in the room were authors. <laughs> Some of them I had interviewed, others I had met, and I got to tell you, it was like being a kid at NFL Fan Day. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was in the room with these these folks, and they was they were you know they were all so smart, and it was just it was a really uh, amazing uh, experience for me. Now, I want to start out with a few things from the back of the book. Now, Drew doesn't know I'm going to do this, but. I don't have a lot of books on the show about brands and branding. Some, but not a, not a whole lot. And it, in part because I've seen enough of them, or a few of them, they're, they smell too much like arts and crafts party planning. <laughs> this one doesn't. And you know, it's Bob Hoffman, the ad contrarian, who you, you probably know. He's been on the show four times. He's a real curmudgeon. And he's famous for saying, there's no bullshit like brand bullshit. And that's sort of my... Uh, you know, my litmus test when I look at it. But I want to uh, quote from the last part of your book, which we'll get into a bit later, and explain why I tend not to have those kind of books. And these, you tackle this head on. So I want to quote from, uh, let's see, I'm going to start with page 111. And this is the section of the book about the scientific approach, the measurement and all that type of thing. You write, the CMO who doesn't know how to translate marketing speak into financial speak is unlikely to be taken seriously. And then a couple pages later, you quote Jeffrey Hazlett, the founder of the C-Suite Network and the former CMO of Kodak. And he said, a lot of CMOs fail because they forget the conditions of satisfaction. In other words, they have not nailed down the key measures of success and therefore will have little chance of demonstrating the value of their contribution. This seems like an obvious thing, but you'd be surprised how few marketers have metrics of success in place at the start of their new position. Then I want to go to page 120. This is for those playing the home game. You write that B2B CMOs, especially those adventure-backed software companies, are a clever lot. <laughs> and and listeners to this show too. When joining their peers in the C-suite or when presenting to their investors or boards, you will rarely hear them utter the word brand or tie a budget item to brand building. And then one last uh, quote from page uh, 125, you write, CMOs who don't try to measure marketing's impact on revenue are CMOs who won't be in their positions for an extended period. So I hope you understand why I'm putting that out there. It's also really, really important for marketers. So when you see a book that talks about building a brand and it has uh, information like that in it, I, don't worry. <laughs> okay, so 
let's go back to the beginning of the book, and let me ask you a, a really big question. Drew Neiser, what does it take to be a renegade marketer? What have you finally discovered about what it takes? Uh, first of all, I want to mention Brent Adamson. Is, I'm such a fanboy of his, and I had a very similar experience to what you were talking about. And it's just his energy and his approach is just, it really opens your eyes. So uh, those of us who've been lucky enough to be in the room with him, it's just incredible experience. So, Amen. Uh, so, uh, and I was, when he said yes to writing the forward, it was like, I did the happy dance for about an hour. That's um, a really big deal. It's a big deal. And you know what? It's a really good introduction too. Oh man. Just, uh, you know, sometimes, and I have had him on my podcast four times, which felt like a blessing enough. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, for him to do that, I'm just a shout out to Brent. He's just uh, phenomenal. And anytime any marketer gets a chance to, or salesperson gets a chance to hear him, they should. So um, when Duke plays Michigan and, and beats them in basketball, don't, don't rub it in. Okay. No, we won't. We won't. We won't even cover that ground uh, at all. We'll just get right back to um, uh, how to buy. So, okay. How to be become a renegade marketer. So in the book, and I'll be back in about 45 minutes to see how you're doing. <laughs> I'm going to need some help with this. <laughs> and by the way, I'm so glad you started where you did um, with that, because I really do think that brand is a fluffy term. And by the way, I've got this thing called CMO huddles, which you mentioned. And this month we focused on that topic of brand and do you talk about it and do you not? And do you measure it? And it's fascinating because about 80% will say, I don't call it brand. So that's part one of this thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. back to being a renegade marketer, you know, having interviewed all these CMOs and this came out of after the first book, which is, What are the four traits that really consistently will get you to success? And the key thing here is if you don't have all four of these, one way or another, you're going to, you're going to, it's not going to work out for you. Right. And I found it so interesting that there's, it's just those four. (laughs) You could have had 95. I could have had 95. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, Franklin had his 13 virtues and so forth. And I could have had more. And there are lots of people who've added more. But when you, break this down and you start with courageous strategy and say, yeah, if you don't have one, if you don't dare to be distinct, you're, you're not going to, it's, first of all, you're not going to have a story to tell. And second of all, you won't make a difference in your job. So that's big picture stuff. And then from an artful ideation standpoint, the key thing there is not that you're artistic. The key thing is that you're an artful communicator and embrace the team effort. And I'll just give you one quick example. The first thing I recommend to every new CMO is to field an employee survey. Yes. The first day. And you'd be surprised when I recommend that they'll do it, but a lot of them don't do yes. it. And it's so easy and it's free. It kills me. So uh, and we're going to talk about that because that, that really uh, struck me as really great advice. We'll get to that though. So, and then the third part of this thing is this care execution, right? Obviously you have to execute, but I add the word thoughtful because again, we go back to this notion that I, we used to call marketing as service, but that if you are thoughtful and you're really thinking about things, you'll say, you know what? We got to engage employees first because they're the front line. We mm-hmm. then have to go to customers. And then finally, when we actually go out and tell the story of the brand, we do it in a form of service, period, end of story. And then lastly, but firstly, because you brought it up, if you don't have the right metrics in place, who cares what you did? 
It won't, yeah. it won't matter. You're done. So the scientific method, but the coolest part of the scientific method, and it's so great because I can go back to Franklin on all this because he was a big scientist so many ways is it, you get from, okay, let's get the metrics, but then let's talk about marketing automation and how much money you're wasting. There. And, <laughs> right. then, yes. and then finally, finally, we can have this liberating mo- moment where we say, you know what, we can test and we can test all sorts of great, cool things and we can make some little bets that'll become big bets. And so I love the fact that we can go from this big picture strategy to these, uh, you know, the, the scientific method and end with something that is kind of exciting and makes the business cool. And it's funny, you were talking about our time at JWT and, and Gray or, and Renny. The business was really fun back then. <laughs> we were we were in the business when it was fun. And, yeah, and- but let, let me let me just interrupt for a second there. People don't appreciate how hard it is to go to three martini lunches. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was there by the time you got there, but there was one gentleman whose name is going to escape me who was a three martini lunch guy. He was the son-in-law of Reynolds, as in Reynolds Wrap. And they had the business. I don't know if they still had it when you were there, but it was close. Anyway, this gentleman would go for his three martini lunch. He would literally leave at about a quarter 11. They put a telephone on his table. They bring his martinis and then he'd come back and he had a, he had a secretary, because that's what she was called, who was told when he came back, no calls, and he would go into his office, turn the blinds down, and put his feet up on the desk and nap. <laughs> well, Drew, you say that like it's all a bad thing. That's exactly what I did. There you go. There you go. <laughs> no. So it was fun. It was exciting. I guess you could argue it was the, the tail end of the, the Mad Men era. It was, it, was a different, it was a different time. So now, those four things you mentioned, uh, courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific. There's an acronym there which is cats. And I'm a terrible singer, but I'm now going to sing memories from cats. No, I'm kidding. As a favor to my audience, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I was thinking about dropping that in here, and I just thought, you know, let's, let's not irritate Drew. Let's, <laughs> let's pay respect to his, uh, to his book. So believe it or not, uh, now that I'm no longer working in an office, we're all working remotely – I have actually been forced to pay attention to my home, <laughs> 1908 house uh, here in Virginia, and you know having all kinds of work done to it. And I have been—I've uh, actually read Marie Kondo's book about clearing away the clutter, and it really makes you feel good. What do I see at chapter one? The title is "Clear Away the Clutter," and I want you to explain this. You write marketing has become way more complicated, but rarely more effective. Be the Marie Kondo of marketing. Simplicity and focus are your new besties. Drew Neiser, please explain what you're talking about. Oh, my God. And this just kills me. So we did some research, and we had a theory four years ago that marketing was getting ridiculously complicated, but we weren't sure, and we weren't sure if it was getting more effective. So we did a survey among 150 in the first year CMOs and said, is marketing getting more complicated You know, than the last 12 to 24? 90% or 80 to 90% said, absolutely. It wasn't strong agree. It was strongly agree. I mean, it was a huge uh, confirmation that it got complex. What we weren't seeing is a correlation to effectiveness. And that's sort of what got me started down the road to do this book, which was 
could we radically simplify B2B marketing? Is there any way? Because I would go in to talk to a client and they'd say, could you help us with a messaging grid? We have 14 personas and we'd like to write out very detailed personas and what the sales pitch should be for those personas. I'm thinking no sales guy could remember those things. No sales guy could implement it. And they have no idea they can't in one sentence, you know, uh, describe the brand. So what are you really asking them to do? So anyway, clearing in the way the clutter is both a commitment as a leader that you are going to focus your activities because you can't be effective if you don't focus, period, right? In anything you want to do. If you try to do everything, you're going to do nothing. And it's so obvious, but I have to say, uh, dealing with as many CMOs that I do is they really struggle to clear away the clutter. So I just wanted to put that up front and center and say, this is like, you don't get to pass go. If you can't do this, don't bother reading the rest of the book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. Because you're not going to be able to implement any of these things. And, you know, one of the things I say in that, in that chapter at the end of it is, you know, if you have a list and you add something to it, you have to take something off. Right? Nobody no, does that. Nobody <laughs> does it. And this is the hardest part of this. And it's really easy for me to say, and I sympath I empathize with CMOs mm, so much. Yeah. Is that the CEO will be, you know, have the idea of the month because they listen to a podcast or they talk to a friend or their mm -hmm. wife gave them some input. Or as I like to call it, uh, management by in-flight magazine. Exactly. And they'll they'll suggest something. And the CMO, all they have to do is say, Great idea. We'll put that on the, we'll think about putting that on the plan for Q4. But as you know, we agreed in our strategic plan that these were our three priorities and these are the things that we're doing to deliver those priorities. And I'm assuming your business priorities haven't changed. Great answer. Oh, please, listeners, <laughs> come back with that. Now you do have to have a plan and a strategy. And that's the where we get to the next chapter is, you know, let's start to think about what that plan will look like. And it's it's so obvious and it's so easy but i just when i when i was thinking about and again this comes from a place of empathy i know cmos and how hard their job is and i frankly at any marketer forget cmo any marketer yes. or any entrepreneur who's trying to get a handle on what their marketing should do and could do start there <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely now in the next chapter you have an expression about Marketing is execution. In other words, like it's a popular perception, go do it. And I wanted to ask you to explain and perhaps inspire the listeners with a, a quote from chapter 11, where you write, as the marketer, you have an opportunity to transform your entire organization, not just the words and images that are used in your communications. Explain what you mean there. Well, so... This is, again, where, where this gets really tricky. And remember, you started at the very end of this with a scientific method. So what happens with a CMO who comes in, the CEO says, drive revenue, right? So what they think about is, oh, well, we have to sell more products. So they get to this demand gen and idea, and they say, this is all I want to do is just drive demand. But there's this thing called employees and these folks called customers and a product <laughs> and all of those things have to come together in a way, in a unified way. Right? And an experience the customers have. Yeah. So what this, what we're simply talking about is don't 
and, and this was tricky because when you and I worked on Panasonic, basically the U.S. operation was handed products and said, go figure out. Absolutely. Yes. That was the way it was. Mm-hmm. But today, a marketer can actually sit down with a product marketing team in advance and say, let's bake in some marketing into this idea. <laughs> You know, it's- yeah, based on uh, my understanding of the customers and our competition and so forth and so on, rather than being very product or service oriented. Right. And it's, it's again, this is pretty commonsensical. And so in the book, I try to really give practical ways of doing that. And so let's, for example, say you, you agreed with me in day one, you did that employee survey. And let's say you find out there are four dimensions that you are not delivering on and employees are really unhappy and they don't understand what the brand is. You know what? You can fix that. <laughs> you, the marketer, can fix that. And when you do that, there's a chance you might even transform your customer relationships because everybody knows happy employees are happy customers. You don't have happy customers without happy employees. So this stuff, it's just thinking about your marketing role as transformative. Yes. such a valuable opportunity. And I love, I mean, CMOs that are really good at their jobs uh, are driving change in their organizations. Absolutely. And uh, one of my favorite books, and I I should be careful saying that because the one thing about this podcast is I get to pick which books are on. So I really like all of them, except for a couple interviews that I didn't publish. But the thing I want to mention is there's a book by Barton Barwise, and it's called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. And it doesn't mean it's a marketer who's shouting out commands to a platoon of Marines. It's what you're describing right there. The, the, these really successful modern marketers are walking the halls. They're sort of evangelizing. They're helping to teach and guide the organization. And the companies are very receptive to it. You know, that a lot of these folks don't come from a marketing background. So there's a lot more uh, power and influence that marketers can have. And I, the reason I wanted to talk about that is because we both, you've probably seen this, and I certainly have, where there's sort of an attitude of a maybe a minority of marketers who, well, that's what they told me to do, you know, or, you know, that's, uh, they just told me to sit in the cubicle and design the trade show booth. Well, you're not going to be a marketer for long. You're not going to be very happy doing that. Uh, you know, you, 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 there, are, there are great opportunities for you to start to quietly influence and, and guide the organization, and you'll start to get a, a place at the table, the strategic table. So, um, Hey man, wait, let me first of all. I love Barta's book, uh, and uh, I Thomas. It, it's just what I love about it is they did some a tremendous amount of research among a lot of them, and so if you are CMO, you can sort of see what characteristics matter and what how, where the leverage is going to be. That was point one. Point two on this thing is you mentioned about most people in an organization don't have marketing experience. It's less than for CEOs. Less than twenty percent have any marketing experience in their careers. Yeah, you mentioned that. Like, I guess it was uh, S&P 500 companies and the FTSE 100. It was just, it's very small. Kim Whitler writes about this a lot. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention about Marie Kondo and uh, clearing away the clutter, it's like the signal to noise ratio for marketers is probably like one to 100. <laughs> <laughs> and the more that you can focus on that signal instead of the all the distractions and things you're being asked to do every day, and uh, it, it, it's really uh, important. Try to find the signal. So let's move on to page 14 about um, 
messaging. And you write that about, about, about being distinctive and developing a distinctive and perhaps unique brand strategy for your business. You write that there are usually three basic dimensions to explore first, what you do, how you do it, and for whom you do it. And I'd like you to tell us the story about the company that your apartment building hired for renovations. Oh, I love that story. And it's just such an amazing moment because sometimes, you know, you think, oh, my company's really boring. We're just in the construction business. There's nothing that we can really do to differentiate our brand. And so I was uh, on the co-op board of our co-op where we live. I was on it for 14 years. About halfway through, we realized we needed to do a hallway renovation. So the board of seven of us, not one of us had ever gone through this before. So what happens is managing agent goes and finds three contractors who bid on the job and then they come in and they present to you. And so the first one comes in and he says, uh, we ask him a question. So what do you guys do? And say, well, we do hallways, we do restaurants, we do office buildings. Great. And well, what's your method? And he said, well, we start at the bottom and work our way up. And, and is anything else? And they go, nope, that's it. Okay, great. Sex, second person comes in and says exactly the same thing. We go, oh, okay, well, this is the way it's going to be. Third person comes in. It's it's John Marino from JPMB uh, Construction. And I'll never forget it. We, he says, uh, we ask him, so what do you guys do? He said, we only do hallways and co-ops. Go, what? <laughs> Wait, what? You, you only do hallways and co-ops? And we say, yeah. And oh, by the way, before we could even ask another question, he says, here are the 10 emails that you're going to want to send to your co-op owners. Because let me tell you this, the biggest complaint is uh, dust. And so guess what? We put 10% of our budget into cleanup. And we even have special sanders that have these vacuums on it. So there is less dust. And these are the emails that you're going to go. So and they clean up like at the end of each day too. Every day. Yeah. And so, you know, as a board, it was like, oh, wait, we're not in a hallway. We're not looking for someone uh, to do the construction. We're looking for someone to minimize the complaints. Mm-hmm. It like completely shifted the way we thought about it. And anyway, easiest decision. Oh, by the way, he when we asked him, what's your process? He said, well, you always start at the top and work your way down because gravity is your friend. And go, okay, great. So. He differentiated on the on the who, right? But what was interesting is by differentiating on the who, as in co-ops and condos, he also ended up differentiating on the how mm-hmm. because of the process. And then later on, and this is the part that really stuck with me, I said, after the meeting, I said, John, so what's the story? Have you always done just co-ops and condos and hallways? He goes, no, we used to be a general contractor. And he said, oh, that must have been a little scary. How was it? He said, it was terrible at first. We had to turn business down. We had to walk away from deals. And then I said, so how is it now? He says, pretty great. Uh, we um, are You mean invited- he had to turn down business after they decided to specialize? Exactly. Okay. So, right. And this is the hard part of it is you do, this is where focus is often painful because you're going to say no to something and you're going to turn something down. But then I said, how is it today? He said, pretty darn good because, uh, so here's the deal. We get invited to almost every uh, bid and we win 70% of them. And we're always the lowest bidder because we're so efficient because that's all we do. And we have teams that are ready. And the funniest part of this story is we decided to pull one aspect of the project out of his budget because it was like 10,000 more. 
it was the doorknobs. And we said, oh, we'll get, you know, Home Depot to do it. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was a disaster. You know, so we saved $10,000, but oh my God, you know, we're still dealing with the, the stupid doorknobs that we had installed by, uh, no, no offense to Home Depot. It was just, you know, it was just not the same as everything else. So yeah, focus is your friend. Uh, and, uh, but it's a hard decision. And oh. this is really hard. If you're a business owner and you're saying, hey, we're doing these five things right now. You're going to go, wait, I'm going to give up 20% of that? Yeah. And by the way, I heard recently, I was talking to interviewing the CMO of SADA System, and this is public so I can share it. They used to, they're a cloud software company. They, they, they work within clouds to help companies like uh, if you're on AWS or Microsoft or Google. They made a decision uh, a couple of years ago to only do Google. They literally cut off 60, 70% of their marketplace their business has like grown exponentially. Mm. And I noticed in your book's website, you've got all kinds of resources, and we're going to include links to it at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. You actually have a, a list of books that you recommend. And as I was reading this story about uh, JMPB Enterprise, I was reminded of David C. Baker's excellent book, the business of expertise, which is on that recommended list, and it's so for folks that want to go even further in that direction, uh, that's that's a great read. So it's like a, a one more thing. We're like we're uh, brothers from another mother here in terms of our <laughs> outlook and 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 the books that we uh, have found great inspiration from. Now, you do talk about purpose, you know, as it relates to marketing, and I I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was even brought up in Grant Leboff's book, Myths of Marketing, where he says, you know, uh, he explains <laughs> what, really what it means and, and, and why there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And in your book, you write, you don't have to promise to save the world to have a meaningful brand purpose. Okay? Did everybody hear that? So can you explain the concept of big P and little p of purpose? Yeah. And, and this is one that I've struggled with, frankly, for our agency. I mean, our, we have a marketing agency and you know, our logo is a saw and we've had cut through has been our promise since the beginning. It's a little P purpose. It is. It's, we're not saving the world. We're just saying to marketers, we'll help you cut through and our processes will cut through. Um, and it's very uh, clear and to the point, but it's little P purpose. <clears throat> Whereas now, for CMO huddles, I have a big P purpose. I believe CMOs can change the world. If I can help them, and then here's the process that works. You have to first show that you can drive revenue. Then you can begin to talk about purpose in your organization and what that means. So then I have a purpose with CMO huddles. That's big P. So the difference is, look, tough book, which I talk about in the book, had a little P purpose. It's like save your computers, the stuff inside it, right? You can drop it, you can run a homer over it, and it will survive. And that's really important to people who are road warriors and out in the field. It's not save the world, but it's a really clear and undeniable purpose that was actually baked into the name. Big P purpose is much more complicated, and it's harder, and it's and it, it's not even necessarily a differentiator, like in in REI's case and everybody in the mountaineering world, right? They're all out to save the world, and God bless them for that. But it doesn't differentiate the brand. On the other hand, and I would they, like to thank you for not including REI as a case study in this book. 
<laughs> yeah. It's it's in every other marketing book. I know, so. <laughs> I know, I know. We're trying to we're trying to bring something fresh here. And so the case that I did bring, and this is really fascinating because it's important and it speaks back to this other issue of sometimes these decisions cost you money. Um, Bank of the West decided to differentiate on a big P purpose. They weren't going to. They they talk about this idea that your money has um, has a currency is not the right term, but it, your money, where your money goes when you give it to a bank matters. And so what they decided to do was divest a billion and a half dollars of assets that were, they were currently managing for people that did companies that did fracking. Okay. It cost them a billion and a half in assets. Now, the good news is they picked up business on the other side for companies who, for businesses who wanted a bank with a bank that had a purpose. So this is one of those things where sometimes your purpose is going to alienate some, but you know you're going to also activate your your passionate customers. So, uh, and I and Kim Whitler and I debate this at length, by the way. Uh, yes, and she just published an article in the uh, MIT Sloan Review <laughs> about this. So, and I'll include a link to that to this episode's website as well. So, yeah, and it, but it's a good debate. It is a good debate. And it, I think the answer is that it depends on the company and the situation. But I, I do think there are companies out there where, like I've talked to companies, I don't mention them in the book, but that have where they really are an employee first company. They exist for their employees. That's a big P purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and that translates into everything that they do and it shows up in their marketing. And so the whole point of the book is not have a purpose. The whole point of the book is have a focus. Right. That you can then bring to life. Um, purpose just happens to be one of those things. Sometimes it's so hard to find a way of differentiating your brand, and sometimes purpose can do it. Yes, and so that's why we have to go there. And if you can't get to big P purpose, you should be able to get to little P purpose. Um, and and I think there's lots of value in thinking of it that way. And that's why I find that such an important distinction, because I think there's way too many folks that think it has to be saving the world. So uh, one more reason to put your uh, toe in the water there. So you had some uh, just, you know, great advice for marketers. And I just, I wanted to ask you about what's on page 37 here. You, you talk about uh, some things that, you know, a CMO, uh, particularly new CMOs, should do immediately. <laughs> of course, we talked about the employees, but the employee server, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you recommend befriend your HR leader, befriend your CFO, and befriend your head of sales. Great, solid gold advice. Explain why. Again, this is where we're accepting, hopefully you've come along on the journey and you've accepted the fact that marketing can be more than uh, pretty pictures and words, uh, that, that it can actually have a major impact on the organization and it's about alignment. Well, you don't get there without first, and, and I start with the HR leader because I also think that employees are the first place you go to do your marketing. Because mm-hmm. if it does, you know, both to get the information, but also will it resonate? Because if employees don't believe it, end of story, don't run the campaign. So, well, it's also a, a litmus test. It <laughs> is. It is. And and honestly, I talk about that a lot in the book. Is marketing is a series of actions that make your promise real? Okay. So you're if you have a new promise and your employees aren't, they haven't been trained to deliver on the promise. Then you've just put 
paint on an old barn and you know it's yes. just not going to do anything. So anyway, now, so you're going to befriend your head of HR because they might think that you're going to be in their territory by wanting to take over employee communications. You're not. What you are doing is saying, you know what? Brand and the way we market will have an impact on how you recruit and how we retain and how we go position our product in the future. You and I need to be best buds. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's part one. And right now, because there's such a crisis in recruiting and retention, um, they're all ears. I mean, this is what they are really going, they are having a crisis right now at almost every, uh, at every certain companies that I talk to. Okay. Yes. And your brand is a big driver of their recruitment efforts. Oh, totally. I mean, who wants to go to a company they haven't heard of? Yeah. <laughs> You can't tell your mom, oh, I went to work for this company and, you know, and, and well, who's that? And so <laughs> awareness matters there, but also you go to the website and if it's boring, you go, oh, this is a boring company. If there's no personality in the brand, it's like, oh, this, this is, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be boring. And, and that's people want to work for companies that they can believe in. And by the way, this is where purpose sometimes really is powerful, mm-hmm. uh, is, is if they believe that the culture is, um, doing something good in the world and has some focus to it, they're much more likely to say yes. And sometimes they'll take it as the, that'll be the deal, deal breaker. Mm-hmm. Um, versus money. They just like the culture of the company and think they'll fit in better or be able to contribute more. So HR is first stop. Um, and then the CFO. And you know, remember, you started this conversation with metrics. <laughs> right, yeah. That's why we go to the CFO because we're going to get the CFO to work with you to define the metrics that matter for the organization. So when you go and present a budget, your CFO is there because the CFO believes in those metrics because they help create them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, the CFO is sitting there in the meeting with the C-suite when you're all together going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's fourth quarter, cut your budget. Yeah, yeah. But instead, if you, and I've talked to a number of CMOs who've done this and they're like best friends. We did a an event where we had three CFOs on there and they the the relationship of the CMO and the CFO was so phenomenal, and you could just tell the CFO would actually go to the CFO uh, CMO and say, "By the way, we've got some uh, dry powder. I think we could use it to um, drive some more revenue this quarter. What do you think?" That's not a conversation you hear very often. Yes. Yes. And that's the conversation you want is the CFO comes to understand that marketing is a toolkit and investment there, just like it would be hiring, you know, more people or bringing in more sales or, or, you know, more equipment. Yeah. It's a revenue lever that can be adjusted and not to keep talking about Kim Whitler, but I do know she's a listener. (laughs) She has a really interesting story in her book, Positioning for Advantage, about the relationship she had with a CMO, they're still friends, and how effective that became at growing uh, that company's business. Yeah, it's critical. It really is. And uh, I'm always shocked when I don't find that. And so, uh, and then lastly, this head of sales, and here I can tell a story. It's not in the book, but I love this. Uh, so what you're was- saying is this is a marketing book podcast uh, extra? Exactly. Exactly. I hope you listeners appreciate that. And, and this is this is really 
an interesting and important moment and lesson for this CFO, a CMO. So the CMO, first time CMO, first time presenting to a board of directors, goes to the board and says, look at my great numbers. I am driving leads into the system. My team is killing it. Here are all the good things that we're doing. And a board member says, huh, so you're saying that because we're not hitting our numbers so that sales is just dropping the ball? <laughs> oh, and it was like, uh-oh, yeah, that's probably what I was saying. Yeah, he never made that mistake again. And what I love now is like this guy, when he goes in to present to the C-suite, he is in lockstep with a salesperson, so much so they write the presentation together. They give it together or they take turns doing it. So you can't separate marketing from sales. And they, this is just a seamless thing. And so that building that relationship. I mean, the days, and it's not that long ago where marketing and sales, that divide was so huge. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, marketing's useless. They're not doing anything. Give us all that money and we'll hire more salespeople. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then the salespeople, salespeople are useless because, you know, they're just not following up on all the leads we're giving. That is almost gone. Really? Almost gone. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah. And, but now, you know, they're fighting over different things now, but, um, but you know, a good salesperson knows he needs air cover. Well, what's air cover? It's awareness and understanding. What's that come from? Marketing. Yeah. So the relationship used to be like Duke and Carolina fans, and uh, that yep. has not changed. But uh, the sales and marketing is is warming up. It's still a big, big challenge, though. From everything I read and and for what I hear from uh, listeners, and almost every week, people are asking me. Uh, for you know, book recommendations or, or resources on how to how to start to tackle that. This podcast, I've had over fifty books about sales, and I love it. I think I get some of my greatest marketing ideas from reading sales books, but also the really great marketers. My sense is that they have a deep understanding of sales and the sales process, what the salespeople are dealing with, but even more importantly, what the uh, friction is for the buyer and what the buyer motivations are. And you have, again, solid gold recommendation. I just want to quote from this. You write, start by going on a sales call as an observer, but then do a sales presentation on your own. Your sales chief will appreciate your effort to walk in his or her shoes. From there, you can start to break down any sales versus marketing tension. Marketing is hard enough without this unnecessary yet age-old conflict. I have had some authors of sales books saying, you know, marketers should spend at least one day a month with salespeople. So, and then there was another book, Rise of the Revenue Marketer by Debbie Gagish. And she talked about in that interview about a company and in her book as well, I can't remember which one, but anyone they hired for marketing first had to spend three months in sales. (laughs) So I love that. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great idea. So uh, just to go back one more time to this issue of engaging employees before launching a marketing effort. uh, I seem to recall you mentioned some research with CMOs where a lot of them, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of them realize you should do that, but most of them aren't because they don't have any time. Is that right? Yeah, no, that killed me. This was just, this hurt me. It was like, oh no, please, maybe we could do the study again in two years in a row. Um, 80% strongly agree that uh, engaging with employees before launching a new campaign is really important to the success of the campaign. So then we said, so how long do you usually allow for this kind of, uh, of stuff? And, and they'll say, well, less than four weeks. And to me, 
what that signals is, oh, you're just going to tell, show them the ad in the town hall. That's right. And, and so what the book talks about is this story about Aetna and how they spent six months retraining their employees so they could launch a new campaign that said, you don't join us, we join you, because mm-hmm. the promise was that we'll know you and we'll help you a little bit more. And so in order to deliver on that promise, they had to retrain the employees. So when you call in and say, hey, I need knee surgery, the customer service agent will say, Oh, okay. Well, we'll approve that surgery. And by the way, here are the um, PT. Uh, would you like some recommendations for some PT of uh, physical therapy people? Because normally people after knee surgery need that. It's like, that's a transformative moment, right? You don't get there. So marketing is driving a massive amount, a new commitment, mm-hmm. right? A new promise. And then they're reorganized. They're literally training the employees to deliver it. And this is the difference between sort of marketing that really matters and marketing that is fluff. If you are transforming your organization to deliver on your promise, then you're going to kill it. <laughs> well said. So true. And in the uh, chapter on uh, you know engagement, you talk about engaging employees is not an optional luxury for renegade marketers. And then on page 79, you go on and list like some things, bullet pointed list of things that you could be doing to engage employees. I would think the HR folks would like this too. And the very first bullet point, Drew Neiser, is start an employee book club in which everyone reads the same book each month. Now, I'm pretty sure this book's going to reach a second edition. So if you could, I don't need an answer right now, but if you could think (laughs) about start, I just want you to think about adding to this where it says start an employee book club in which everyone reads the same book each month, comma, and listens to the marketing book podcast. Just an idea. I don't need an answer right now. All in. Um, Yeah. Thank you. All in. It's done. Second edition. (laughs) Boom. It's in there. Okay. Great. So I want to go to the very next page where we talk about uh, customers. And you write, it, you know, it seems obvious, this is uh, Cultivate Customer Champions, and uh, you write, it seems obvious enough, every B2B company is in the business of acquiring new customers and keeping current ones for as long as possible. And typically, the business priorities are written in exactly that order. <laughs> in this book, we recommend switching the order and focusing on your current customers before prospects. Drew Neiser, why such a revolutionary idea? I know, I know. Well, look, so here's the deal. 80 to 90% of a marketer's budget is focused on prospects. That's just the way, and that is that kills me. Yes. And it kills me because, uh, you know, the, and what the problem is, and the reason they have to spend so much on that is that they don't have enough uh, case histories. They don't have enough customers that are really willing to uh, help partner uh, in, in, you know, building a community of customers. So what we just talk about is, okay, so we've got our employees engaged. They're really well-trained now. How do we cultivate customers? And this came to a head. And by the way, I had this book written prior to the pandemic, but I put it on hold because I wasn't sure if the principles would still apply. I wasn't sure what would change. And so what was fascinating about the pandemic was folks first figured out that they had to figure out how they could be essential, right? They had to be that because everybody else was not being rejected, was being rejected. But what enlightened marketers did was saying, they pulled up, you know, they, they hugged their customers, not their haters. Sorry, Jay. They, they <laughs> hugged their customers 
And I, I know one CMO, and I think I talk about it in the book, who's who literally called every one of their customers and talked about, okay, what are your challenges? What are you doing? How can we help? Um, it changed the relationship. And so that became the save strategy during the first early days of the pandemic when nobody knew. But you know, you have to ask, why don't you do that all the time? Mm-hmm. Right? And, Anyway, well, when so I saw that in the book, though, I, I can remember writing, I can't remember which page it is, but I, I wrote, are they not, you know, are they not, a separate part of the book, you talk about how the, like you said, 90%, it's, it's on customer acquisition. And I wrote off to the side, are they not marketing to their current customers? Are they not even selling or trying to sell more to the customers that probably already know, like, and trust them? It just seems like it's faster revenue too, isn't it? It is. Um, it's. It goes back to this metrics thing. What are they measured on? Yeah. And you'll do what you're measured on. Yeah. And if everybody and now I do know, and I again, some of the CMOS that I've talked to since the book came out said, "Look, we look at revenue not just as revenue new customers, but also upsell, cross sell, and that's how we're we're rewarded." What you still, even when they say that, they're still not saying we're going to, well, okay, so 30% of our revenue is coming from renewals and upsells and cross-sells, so we should put 30% of the budget in there. Instead, they have this thing called customer success, which is really inside sales um, and not customer experience and customer support. So uh, anyway, bottom line on, on this is I don't exactly know, but I do know that a light bulb went off in in March of 2020, among a lot of B2B brands who realized that, uh oh, we got to, first thing we got to do is, you know, secure the horses in the corral. Right. <laughs> There's a storm coming and we got to get them, we got to get them safe. Uh, Maybe you know, even call your customers and ask how they're doing. <laughs> yeah. And they did. And again, it was sort of empathy and it was, hey, we're all in this together. And some went as far as say, I know you might be cash strapped, we'll suspend the payment. And they got something back for it. They got renewals. They got, well, right. They extended the contract or they, the, the one who said, you know what? I, I won't do a, a testimonial when you said, Hey, we'll delay payments for two months. You want a testimonial? All of those things started to change the relationship to make it easier to get champions. And it's just ironic. It took a pandemic and our sort of the classic kind of recession behavior where you Oh, customers, right. <laughs> I forgot about them. Right, yeah. right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's really important. Now, let's go back. We're starting to circle back here to Ben Franklin. Uh, please explain the concept of selling through service. You mentioned earlier that you all referred to it as marketing through service, but talk about selling through service. Yeah, so uh, we've been living with this idea of marketing as service. And part of this, by the way, just comes back to me wanting to sort of if we're going to be marketers, but we're going to make a difference by not just putting, you know, pollution. And I, sh I think I shared a video of you with you that we did back in 2007. I know you guys were really prescient and it was, so, uh, it's still true. <laughs> it's it's still true. Yeah. Now, we've, we honestly, we renamed it as sell through service because uh, this, all the chapters are alliterative and marketing through service isn't. So you just, I just, you know, that's inside baseball, but Selling through service comes from Franklin. Well done is better than well said. We've got our purpose-driven story statement, which defines the brand. We say, we're going to execute, we're going to do six things that brings that to life that are of value. 
This is <laughs> right. not right. That actually deliver value to employees, customers, and prospects in that order. And by the way, we have this thing called plan on a page. One, you know, one one purpose driven story statement, and then you can get this whole thing. Talking about clear away the pot, you can get this whole plan. And selling a service is extends into lots of different forms of marketing. But you know, if we go back to Brent Adamson, where he says buying is broken, mm-hmm. selling through service becomes about sales enablement. How do you make it easier for the customer to get to a decision? And there's lots of things you can do. Um, and I quote Adamson a lot in the book, but there are other things. It's a philosophy that marketing can be about the value that you're bringing to the table as opposed to messaging. And this is the thing that kills me. And we, we'll get we, we used to get it and we won't do that kind of work anymore where someone says, Hey, we need a messaging grid. It's like, no, no, no. you need an, you need a service grid. You need a, th- a number of things that you can do that will help someone actually be interested in having a conversation with you because you've really made their life easier at a moment when they need something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not a complicated, you know, Jay's book, uh, utility, speaks to that you know that was a long time ago um and you know, there's a- <laughs> yeah, like 2014 or uh <laughs> yeah. yeah and alex i'll include a link to his interview and also his other one hug your haters yeah. jay bear is almost like a ghost uh guest host co-host for me because his <laughs> books keep getting rid but it's so true uh basically uh being of service and it, it, of course it brought to mind this one funny exchange I had with a client a couple years ago where they were saying, okay, we're ready to start doing some email marketing. And anyway, uh, we were talking about what they, what they had in mind and they said, well, we'd like to talk about our products and uh, some of the projects we've been doing. (laughs) I'm just thinking, where's the value? I mean, come on boss. Even your mom doesn't want to read that. (laughs) And she's, and she loves you and is proud of you. Yeah. So, and actually just to quote from page 100, the sell-through service mindset requires marketers to put customers at the center of the universe. Sacre bleu. <laughs> so let me give you an example of selling through service. There's, there's a couple, but the, my favorite all time, and it starts with a story that's not per- completely in the book. This was for HSBC. They came to us and said, hey, we're thinking about having street teams give away little statues of liberty. This is a true story. Uh, and, and on the street, uh, what do you think? Will you help us? Because at that time, Renegade was known as a guerrilla marketing agency. This was in the early 2000s. And uh, we said, huh, okay, I'm sure your customers will really care about getting little statuettes. So you're, they're, you know, you're talking about people putting money in your bank. And they wanted, the reason the idea behind it is they really had this idea, the world's local bank. They wanted to appear as as if they were a local bank. So we came back to them in the framework of marketing a service and said, here's an idea. You want to be associated with New York? We're going to create a program called the Bank Cab featuring checker cabs, which are an iconic New York thing. We're going to put a, we're going to do a search for the most knowledgeable cab driver in New York, which often felt like an oxymoron at that time. And we're going to put them on the road and we're going to give free rides to HSBC customers. So this now, was in the book. This was in the book. Yeah, no, but the story behind how we got to that idea. Well, oh, okay, right. Okay, right. And and so we just uh, the 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 part about the giving away. Yeah, they were kind of self-diagnosing and telling you what they wanted, and you came right. back and said, uh, "Okay, now that we understand, we think this is what you actually need versus what you want." 
Exactly. And so that program ran for years and years and years. And somebody would, would get this free ride, which, you know, in New York is like, you get something free. It's like, oh my God, I won the lottery, but mm-hmm. it's a luxurious cab. And the cab driver, Johnny Morello, who won this contest actually uh, was a genius about New York. I mean, he knew everything. You could ask him anything about it and he, he knew it. Um, a bigger idea in the world of B2B is Small Business Saturday. It's, mm-hmm. my, it's just an incredible program that is selling through service. They created a movement that they've just sort of gifted to the small business world, whether you're an American Express customer or not. So between Black Friday and Cyber Monday, there's Small Business Saturday. They created this. They support it. That's selling through service. And you don't have to do it that scale. You can, any business can sell through service. You just have to sort of start with um, the customer in mind and how you can help them. And by the way, it could be just make them laugh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I knew I knew a logistics company. I don't talk about this in the book, a Canadian logistics company who built their business simply by having comedy on their website. Because mm-hmm. there was nothing funny about the business. <laughs> right, right. Well, let's get on to this final thing that I started with, okay. the the S, the scientific part of uh of cats. Yeah. And just talk briefly in our remaining time about how can a marketer go about measuring what matters? How, how can they go about determining what matters? We've touched on it a bit, but if you could say a bit more about some of the things that you could measure. Yeah. So you can measure everything. That's the problem. It's yes. It's like everything in this book is about how do we simplify things? How do we get rid of things? And one of the complaints that CMOs often face, and this is amateur hour, it doesn't happen that often anymore, is they'll go to their board with like 50 metrics. And by the way, the board and the CEO really only care about one revenue. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, they might care about a few. So again, we go back to, we partnered with a CFO. We've worked on metrics that are in context of what the business wants. But we're also saying, all right, marketing can have an impact on employees, on customers, on prospects. And then there's this thing called brand. And in the book, I talk about these blended metrics that you can create on the cheap for employees, for customers, for prospects. And that's mainly philosophically measuring what matters. You got to have this so you can understand employee satisfaction, customer advocacy, and prospect interest. And if you don't have at least one, if not two metrics in those four buckets, you're going to be missing what marketing can truly do. And you're going to be stuck in this drive revenue cycle that is uh, ultimately not very, um, it's it's problematic as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And you talk in the book about the different ways to, to uh, measure your brand health, but I've got to add in here, I mean, there's a little bit of math, not you know, we're not talking calculus here, but you remind uh, readers of things that you should be trying to measure. Don't wait for the CFO to bring this to you, but like customer acquisition cost or lifetime value or uh, net new logos, sales qualified leads, marketing source pipeline, all great stuff. And you could even be bringing forward to the C-suite some of these things that they may not know to ask for. Again, back to the the Barda Barwise uh, idea of, of of teaching folks. So, uh, just a couple of the things from the towards the end of the book. You've got a, a whole chapter on tech, you know, Martech <laughs> uh, automation, and I I couldn't find it. Um, I guess I didn't mark it up, but it there was a joke from uh, about the problem of using the term automation. <laughs> 
<laughs> with with this software because it's not it's not really automated. Can, can you explain that? That, that yeah. that's like a popular myth that oh we don't have to do anything. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the thing that kills me, and this is where uh, you know it, it reminds me of a sort of of. Monty Python like ask you talk to the marketer today and and particularly one that came up through sort of data or demand gen they'll say hey let me tell you my, let me show you my tech stack <laughs> and it's like really um cuz what 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 Forrester found is that uh, about 19 billion is being wasted on technology and the reason is is that Almost every technology requires a three to one, one dollar for the technology and three dollars in people to take advantage of it. At minimum, it's, it seems. <laughs> and so what happens is they bring on marketing automation and they give half a headcount without bringing anybody who understands how to do it. Um, and so, and then they just keep adding because there's so many cool technologies out oh, there. Oh, yeah. Every and one they, of them is seductive in its own way, all 8,000 of them. Oh, my God. And you go, oh, I want that. And the truth is, it's like, yeah, but are you going to make sure? And there, and uh, when I brought this up with CMOs, it's interesting because they get a little defensive about it, and they'll say, "Well, there are some that actually save us time." We go, "Great, okay, but how many don't? And how many really like marketing automation? You need a lot of people to make that work." Mm -hmm. And there's that's sort of part one of this thing. The other part of it is when you get all these people into the weeds doing all this stuff, they end up measuring clicks and stuff and they get lost. And so you need a philosophy philosophy for your MarTech stack and an approach and what it is that you want to measure. Again, it all comes back to that. But then you know, if you're spending more than 10% on your marketing technology, because marketing technology isn't marketing. <laughs> Right. Right. I mean, when we worked on Listerine, we had to keep our production budget under 10% of the whole thing. That was a rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. Now you're fighting, if you can keep your marketing technology stack under 10%, you're a hero, which is stupid. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because it's not, it's like that money, if you're spending 20% on technology, I go, well, that's 10% you could have put into marketing. To build awareness at least or 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 do something amazing but instead so anyway well, but me, let I, me let me add to that because you talk about Forrester recommends shifting the 19 billion previously earmarked for technologies to more creative efforts to gain 10 billion more in ROI in other words it, what was it uh you said I think at one point you said a great rule of thumb is to make sure that the technology is only about 10% of your marketing budget, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's, it's a good number. I'd love to see it 5%. Um, but there is some good stuff out there. And, and again, I think once you scale it down and what one of the things a book does is say, Hey, do an audit, go in and check what you've got and make sure that you're getting the value you, you wanted out of it. And the thing that's so interesting about marketing technology is Marketing technologists are are really good marketers. <laughs> they are so good. And that's part of the problem is that they're so good at marketing and doing a lot of these things that it's, it is uh, seductive. And, and so these things just keep, oh, I could use that. And that will allow me to tell a better story to my CEO. And then instead, it's just like, no, you just took money out of your budget. So anyway... That's uh, automated attentively. And I in the book, there's a how to do an audit. And there's a lot. And yes. by the way, I do at the end acknowledge that 
there's no looking back. I'm not a Luddite. You got to have this. Stuff. Right. And, and half of that chapter is about, okay, now that we've established this, which is what we're really talking about here, you say, now there are great things that marketing technology can do for you, <laughs> but, yeah. but keep uh, take a more sober approach to this. And it's just, is it really that different from somebody who buys a gym membership in January thinking that's going to help them lose weight? The problem is they actually have to go to the gym and exercise. <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> Right. Well, let me just ask you uh, about two other things, uh, and I appreciate okay. all the extra time you're spending with us. Um, one is about uh, testing, and explain this expression, testing to triumph. And uh, you even talk about a great idea is to set aside 10% of your budget for experimentation. That's a that's a trademark move of the renegade marketer. But testing to triumph, I love that. Um Explain what what that's all about. And and do you not see as much testing as you think there should be? Well, I don't see, uh, you know, enough marketers put 10 to 20% of their budget into testing. And that's problematic. And it was particularly problematic if you didn't have tests going during the pandemic or right before the pandemic. And I tell the story of one CMO who had a test going that was about 20% of her budget. And then that became 80% as of March 15th. And fortunately, she had the test. But one another CMO talks about these little bets that can become big bets. Mm-hmm. And so, because look, you 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 know, part of the scientific method is great. You have something that's working for you. You've tested your way to get there. But there's always something else that you can try. And I'm not saying have 20 tests, by the way. But one of the things that a lot of companies are doing right now is testing ABM. And in the process of testing ABM, by the way, they're finding there's a, this is a hard, this is really hard <laughs> to make it work. And so you have to get all the kinks out of in ABM to make it work. And, and when you do, it can be amazing, assuming you get all the kinks out. But that's a good small bet that could become a big bet. And part of this also is this culture of experimentation. The part about chief marketing officer that I really think about is the chief. You're a leader. You are the person who is making marketing something really important in the organization. And if you're building a culture of experimentation, you're going to keep your employees longer and you're going, and you have to be able to celebrate successes and failures. And I talk about that in the book, but it's so fun. That's the fun part of this. Yes. Thing. Yes. So true. And I can't remember which book because you've whipped me into a renegade marketing frenzy in this conversation, but there was one recently where a great question for a CEO or whoever's approving a marketing plan or a budget or whatever is to ask, okay, what are you going to be testing this year? Yeah. That's a great question to, to sort of become the straw that stirs the drink of, you know, I'm not a marketer, I'm the, you know, the CEO, but you should be testing things. And it also seems to give such great air cover to uh, the marketers. And whenever we've pitched something to a client, we say, well, this is going to be a test and we want to learn. It's not a silver bullet that's going to uh, deliver us from evil. So, now you mentioned ABM. That's the last thing I want to ask you about. You write very important words here on page 146. Account-based marketing is not something that can be ignored in the B2B marketing space. And you go on to talk about a conversation you had with um, Peter Isaacson, uh, who was then the CMO of Demandbase. And on the next page, I was wondering if you could talk about the three big mistakes he sees uh, from companies uh, that are struggling with 
ABM implementation? Yes. Yeah, so uh, number one is not engaging the sales department in new strategies. That's kind of goes back to the welcome <laughs> right. part of it. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't, ABM is a partnership period and a story. And if you don't, if you try to do it from the marketing department, it will fail. Just don't. Um, they really have to be equally invested because part of ABM is, okay, we picked a hundred accounts. We're going to go after those hundred accounts when the intense signals are happening. If sales guys are going, oh, I'm working my own leads. It fails. Yeah. So the second one is not aligning with the right target accounts. And so here's, you know, in any direct marketing thing, by the way, uh, it's always 60% is the lead, is the, the data, right? The, 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 are the, do you have the right people in your database? And so not aligning on the right target accounts mean you're just going after the wrong people. And, and so that's going to fail. It always does. And then the third one is tackling too many areas of ABM all at once. There's a lot you can do with ABM. There's mm -hmm. so many add-ons that live on top of, of this. And you can integrate so many cool things. And it's amazing when it's working really well. But it takes time to learn each of those technologies and, it, and to make sure that you're getting the most. And it goes back to automating attentively. It's like if you, you know, sometimes you get, you, uh, I don't know, I got a new car a few years ago. I, it took me what weeks to figure out how to just use the <laughs> the, the system. Oh yeah, and, right. It's <laughs> like I, I just want to make a phone call. <laughs> uh, right. No, I know what you're talking about. My wife got a new car a few years ago, and I couldn't figure out how to turn it on. <laughs> right. So you know, and ABM is, is there's some amazing. Again, as I said, there are a lot of add-ons in it, but don't try to do it all at once. Do it in building blocks, and and. Then we circle right back to the salespeople and do we agree? We've added this. Did it work? Are we comfortable? Great. We'll add another one. Yes. Um, so there you are, ABM. So Drew, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? So we talked a lot about the CATS framework and, and I think that's it. What I really want to do is make their life easier and more gratifying. And so just take a piece of paper, write down four quadrants, put courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific, and see if you can put two things in each of those boxes. Are you know, is your strategy courageous? Are you artfully ideating? Have you sort of found your point of distinction? Are you executing on a thoughtful yeah. basis? And do you have the right metrics in place and testing, right? If you have all of those, amen. And if you don't have, can't put one or two actions in each of those, then, you know, um, you need to re look at your priorities because that's really how we radically simplify and become a renegade marketer. Mm, that's great advice. And that's something somebody can do today. So looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Um, okay. So first I have to say autobiography of Ben Franklin, of course. Uh, he's just, he's sort of an original American made, you know, a Horatio Alger story of mm -hmm. arriving in Philadelphia at a young age and with pennies in his pocket. Um, and I, I'll stay in the sort of, uh, pantheon of things and Lincoln on leadership. If you've never read that, I pull that out all the time, uh, in terms of just reminding myself, what are, what's a good leader? Uh, do now. I'm going to give you one that you're not going to expect, which is the joys of Yiddish. And like you, I I'm a fan of dad humor, and the book is crammed with it. And so I just love to every and it sits very close to here and just take a break and look and oh that's funny I didn't know that the definition of a schmazel was the guy who the schmiel falls onto when he falls out of a window. Um, that's just a funny story and and 
And then lastly. Oh, by Leo Rostin. Yes. Oh. Choice of Yiddish. Hilarious. Anything I could do to get my adult children to continue rolling their eyes at dad's stupid jokes. It's, it's one of my life missions. Oh, my God. They're all in there. And then the lastly is Nuts, uh, which is about the founding of Southwest Airlines. Great story about building an employee culture that ultimately drives the brand. Uh, just phenomenal story. Oh, interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. I could understand the name of the uh, the book, though. Well, that's great. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I uh, So I finished recently How Not to Suck at Marketing by my friend Jeff Perkins. Jeff oh, is, yeah. I've heard about that book. Yeah. So Jeff is, is one of the few CMOs who became a CEO. And it's a really fun read. And if you, you you'll see why he became a CEO, because he's just uh, an incredibly engaging, empathetic human. And uh, it's, so it's a great personal story. And then I'm sort of halfway through Dan Gingas is the experience maker. Um, it's just got some great sort of customer experience moments and I'm only halfway through. So I, he has an acronym. I've only gotten through two of the letters. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm actually interviewing him about that next week. I'm looking forward to having him back on the show. Oh, perfect. Yeah. 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 I'm doing a podcast with Dan uh, or something with CMO Huddles uh, uh, upcoming soon. So it's very cool. Oh, good. Good. Now, Jeff Perkins, you mentioned him in the book, I think. He's with the uh, parking yes, software park, company. Park Mobile. Yeah. yeah. You talk about their business during the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. This is a guy who spent a lot of time uh, building a strong employee culture. And boy, did that matter when the pandemic struck because their business stopped. Nobody was driving into a city to park, and they're in the parking business. Yeah, yeah, uh, interesting. Yeah, I actually heard about that book from Carla Johnson, whose new book oh. is Rethink Innovation. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including a number of interviews that have been on the Marketing Book Podcast that I've mentioned, like all the folks that endorsed your book and Jay Bears, <laughs> those two interviews for those two books, and uh, include links to um, your site, including uh, Renegade Marketer. Is that it? It's renegademarketing.com. It Renegade, straight to the book. Right. Renegade, I'm sorry, renegademarketing.com. And that's got some really cool uh, extras, bonuses, um, I, I just downloaded five of them. Uh, one of them I mentioned was all the books, uh, but but you can sign up for the newsletter and get extras uh, for the book. Um, include links to your LinkedIn profile and your Twitter profile. And the reason I'm doing that is so that if you, the listener, would please do me a big favor and reach out to Drew and thank him for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. There's lots of podcasts out there. He spent a lot of time with us talking about his great book. I, it, please swarm him and thank him. And if nothing else, thank him for putting up with this knuckleheaded podcaster and his really stupid, immature jokes. So, And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Renegade Marketing, 12 Steps to Building Unbeatable B2B Brands. The author is Drew Neiser. Drew, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh my gosh, Douglas, my pleasure. So you're doing amazing work. Keep going. I'm going to have to read all these books now. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. 
If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some marketing book podcasts, bookmarks, and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, 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 o